Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Lot to Process. I'm your host, Carrie Osi, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Joanna Chen and Brianne Young. Today, we're going to talk about Britney Spears and several other controversies and scandals that have been brewing in popular culture over the last uh, week, months. Uh, and to get us started, Joanna has some really great framing thoughts. Joanna? Yeah, it's good to be talking to you guys today about this. And I think it's important for us to start this conversation with celebrities really are the vehicles in which we can discuss culture. But that doesn't mean that we erase their humanity or their need for privacy. So as we talk about these things, I really want to acknowledge the fact that at the core of this, these are people who are struggling with these things. We don't have the details into their private lives. So we're really going to be talking about what we do have access to so that we can talk about society and how we see parallels with other people's careers and how we really see how our society is evolving. But not to say that we know Britney Spears or that we want to um, influence her life in any way or cause her any more stress in the sense that we're like investing this paparazzi culture and breaking her privacy boundaries. Thanks, Joanna. That's such a good way to put it. So I think the way that we will uh, proceed is we'll talk about the Britney Spears documentary called Framing Britney Spears, uh, produced by the New York Times and Hulu, and I think FX as well. And then we'll get into some of the ways that we connected dots between uh, what's going on with Britney and also what we're seeing in uh, such situations as the Joss Whedon controversy, um, where a number of actors who've worked with him are alleging abuse and talk about the implications of uh, perhaps a bit of an abuse and exploitation culture that was very alive in the 90s and mm. the aughts and probably is still with us today. Um, and talk about some of the other uh, folks that we see who've perhaps struggled along the way in similar ways to Britney Spears for similar reasons. So I'd love to turn it over to you, Brie, right now. If you could maybe give like a high level summary of the Britney Spears documentary and some of the main points that it made. Sure. Thanks, Carrie. And hello to all of our listeners. It's nice to be here again with everyone. Um, so the the Framing Britney Spears documentary was an overview of her conservatorship that her father has on her since 2008. So going on 13 years, it gave a really good um, insight into her background, where she was born, how she was raised, how she got into this Hollywood lifestyle and how she started her career, which is really important to the context of um, how it all kind of led to her conservatorship. It mm -hmm. highlighted what people see as her down, saw as her downfall um, and her kind of mental health crisis. Um, although that mental health wasn't as much talked about freely as it is right. now, which also um, is really important in my opinion. And I think one of the things for me that was the hardest to see was the involvement of the paparazzi in just um, mm. really destroying her and 
um, it gave me a newfound insight into the paparazzi and I should say a newfound dislike. I was so <laughs> angry at one of the paparazzi that had just stalked and followed her. Yeah. Um, so that was hard to watch. And then it, it talks about, you know, the, the lawyers and the trials of her conservatorship. And I think it ended on a hopeful note, at least I hope so. And um, just giving more people the ability to see her lifestyle and where she is now and hopefully to help her regain control of her life. Definitely. And I think a lot of that is also interwoven with the free Britney movement, which really started right. on the internet as people became more concerned with her freedom and her ability to express herself, which is why I feel like her career is such a good way for us to really discuss what femininity and the Western patriarchy and celebrity culture really is right now in America. Yeah, I agree with that, Joanna. Um, Instagram was pretty much the tool that Britney Spears was able to use to allow people to see into her life and right. what really started the free Britney movement. And um, I really think we she owes social media a lot for for being able to to create this documentary yeah and gathering gathering a big supportive fan base right and this is the part where we really want to acknowledge the work that the you're wrong about podcast does and how they contributed and really started the free britney movement and i would even reframe what you just said brie where oh wow that's going to be so confusing brie and britney <laughs> where <laughs> Britney Spears was able to take control of her own narrative through social media in a right. way where she had no control whenever at the height of the tabloid culture in the 2000s, as Carrie was talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there are a few podcasts that we wanted to call out. I think it's it's the Britney's Graham that is responsible for the movement. Um, that's the one where they're like, Britney's Graham, the happiest place on ah. the internet. Mm -hmm. We're <laughs> awesome. And the You're Wrong About podcast has done really important work too um, on a broader scope of just revisiting a lot of news stories, things that we became obsessed with, specifically like in the 90s around Britney Spears, Princess Diana, Lorena Bobbitt, a lot of names that you guys may not know because you, you weren't uh, hearing the news then, but but they just go back and, and look at the public record and see what Ooh. we were wrong about. And uh, so between Brittany, Brittany's Graham and uh, You're Wrong About, those are some places where I've really learned. I've been schooled. And, you know, Joanna, what you are saying about this movement, uh, I will admit that I, you know, I was aware of it. I thought it was pretty fringe. I thought yeah. there were people <laughs> who were kind of on the extreme end of, fandom and yeah um, and it really this this documentary really showed me that was unfair yeah and are you guys uh, you know this didn't get referenced in the documentary do you remember the leave britney alone um, yes. yeah yeah that was like it was like a joke um yeah. but it's not a joke you know what that person was saying was was mm. echoed, you know, and I think that uh, it might be one of the notes that Brie added in our, our outline is just that the paparazzi members who are like, oh, she didn't really want us mm -hmm. to leave. Mm -hmm. 
she really wanted them to leave her alone. Right. right. I believe it was Daniel Ramos was the paparazzi. <laughs> I, I am um, because it's horrible. He was in the documentary. He was interviewed and he was like, well, Britney Spears never actually asked me to leave her alone. <laughs> And the interviewer was like, well, what about that time when she said, please leave me alone? Mm -hmm. And he just responded, well, she asked me that like one day, but it, it didn't mean I needed to leave her alone all the time yeah, for her she life. She didn't say leave me alone forever. And I'm like, I mean, it was appalling yeah. that, that, but we can get right. into that later in the episode. <laughs> well, yeah. But Go ahead, Joanna. Yeah. And also whenever Brittany was really open about her conservatorship and she said like, I I'm telling people that I want this freedom, this liberation, but people, it falls on deaf ears. And mm -hmm. I think it's really us really rehearing it in a new society now. And how can we hold ourselves accountable, both in how we treated her as a woman and also how we understand mental health and where that intertwines with celebrity culture and this paparazzi machine. Because even though Daniel was a terrible person for clearly ignoring all of her boundaries. Mm -hmm. There's still something to be said that we have a machine that makes millions of dollars invading the privacy of so many people. Mm -hmm. And to us, that's celebrity culture. And that's something that we applaud. I for sure agree with all of that, Joanna. It's so well said. And some things that strike me, first of all, this is an experience I've had as a woman. I think that yeah. uh, people have this experience when they're not sort of what Hannah Gadsby calls human neutral, you know, sort of a white cisgender man. You you say things over and over again and people just don't hear it. And yeah. it, it's uh, seeing that happen to Britney Spears was familiar. Um, but I think that the fact that it was happening in the context of this sort of rabid culture of, you know, celebrity and paparazzi makes it even more disturbing. And, you know, you're calling out Daniel Ramos. I, I think that he is, you know, just extraordinarily, you know, sort of uh, rationalizing what he yeah did. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> But, you know, I think there are people with so much more power who yes. hurt her, both members of the press and other public figures that really, really struck out, stuck out to me. Yeah. You know, first of all, like when they were interviewing Ramos, they were also interviewing, I think, an editor or publisher from Us Weekly, mm -hmm. just trying to massage the whole point of Us Weekly. Yep. It's aspirational. No, it's voyeuristic. It's, yes. It needs this culture of photographers trying to make a living, you know, doing this kind of stuff. And then, of course, there was Diane Sawyer. I mean, I just, the moment when I think I was like, I want a podcast about this was around the time that they showed this interview that Diane Sawyer did with the mm. teenage Britney Spears. And she's basically, Diane Sawyer for for younger listeners who might not be as familiar was sort of the premier television interviewer of the time you know she was seen as this trusted mm. trusted sort of uh, surrogate for the audience and so smart and you guys might remember this part of the documentary you know she's this really pretty blonde lady 
and she's just got this sweet smile on her face, but she's basically accusing a young Britney Spears of somehow not properly threading the needle between being mm. a young teenager and these the sexualized pop star. And the thing that she did in that interview was ambush Britney Spears with yeah. the audio of the first lady of Maryland, Katie Ehrlich, <sighs> saying, you know, if I could shoot Britney Spears, I would. So you see Britney Spears hearing this for the first time in yeah. the on television. And she is immediately panicking. She's immediately just, she just spirals. And Diane Sawyer, it, rather than being like, I'm so sorry people are doing this, Diane Sawyer said, she's saying this because she thinks that you're just a bad influence on children. What is your yeah. that? And I thought, oh, oh my God. Traumatizing. It I mean, is. that's just, yeah, I was pretty baffled by that too, Carrie, that um, she just seemed to have no real um, sympathy for that comment being made or that she said that to Britney Spears and you could tell Britney Spears was caught off guard, but was trying not to act caught off guard. But I mean, I can't imagine being ambushed on national television, hearing that someone wants to right. kill me if they had the opportunity. But then to Carrie's point, on some level, we kind of can. Because I remember whenever I was younger and also navigating this space as a teenager in which society really expects us to be pure and to be wholesome. And what are there other adjectives that we really constrain women with? But at the same time, Brittany talks about it as this ability to take control of herself and this confidence that she exudes that our patriarchal society perceives and sexualized her with, right? Like she's dancing, living her best life. Her dream and aspiration has always been to share her music and to dance. And yet because of what she does and the way that she does it, people sexualize her. And I really relate to that as a young person. And like, I was always sexualized because of the way my body looks, not because of any agency on my part. And so I really relate to this gaslighting that she experiences on national television and continues to experience throughout her entire career as she's just being constrained and not being treated as a human being, if that makes sense. Uh, that makes so much sense. And part of her early story that struck me was, first of all, Britney Spears was a child prodigy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If she had been a boy and she'd been a math genius or mm -hmm. or maybe if she looked a different way and came from a different family and was uh, played a musical instrument, uh, it would be different. But sh she was no less at sort of miracle when in a who knows what, just a very low probability level of talent. And she was so self-possessed. And I think that's part yeah. of the lie that was being told about this young Britney Spears is that she was never stable, that she was maybe a, a somewhat talented child whose talent was just sort of mined and manipulated. And, and then mm -hmm. she, you know, was an unstable young adult, but it was much more a story of a prodigy who is incredibly um, smart about her own career who had her yeah. own for her career. You know, there's the point mm -hmm. at which she was interviewed saying, I make all of these decisions right. about my business and my image. 
and that really goes, but I'm having an aha moment right now with some things you're saying, Joanna. And as the mother of a, of a teen, I'm thinking we are just, we don't know what to do with female teen sexuality in our and we we don't have like a good safe narrative for it it's we kind of feel like oh these people are underage so they just short, sort of shouldn't have sexuality <laughs> or they do it's it's it, it, and it's their decision they're being morally wrong or if they do and it's not their decision they're being exploited whereas part of britney spears you know sort of prodigy and talent was just bringing out this persona that, as you say, Joanna, was her authentic self. Her authentic self was sexual and beautiful. Right. And uh, right, she can't she can't control like what her genetic makeup is. There right. was that point at which somebody asked her about her breasts. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh! <laughs> yeah, that was mm, disturbing. Yeah. It was disturbing for so many reasons, not the least of which is that she was such a talent. And I'll say another moment in this this documentary that just horrified me because I realized that I lived through this and I sort of probably normalized it was when she was a 10-year-old on Star Search. Oh, my gosh. And Ed McMahon, after she's given this just stunning, it's you you can't believe that a performance like that is coming out of a child Mm -hmm. and what he wants to talk to her about is if she has a boyfriend and she's she go ahead and say this brie i feel like Um, well yeah because i was baffled by this moment when i saw it i i rewinded the documentary and played it again because i couldn't believe that i just saw it um but yeah she's basically asked what she thinks about boys after giving this incredible performance and um, she just kind of responds that she doesn't have a boyfriend and she's, you know, not really interested. And then he asks, what if I was your boyfriend? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was to so a 10 year old girl. <laughs> right. So inappropriate. And just like, why, why was that thought that that would be an appropriate question to ask a 10 year old female? Mm-hmm. And, also completely ignoring the incredible performance she just gave you know right. it really um minimalized her talent mm-hmm. on on that show and it was it was disheartening to see that because you know that that never would have happened to a a boy right, right. and you know just to step off of this i'd be interested in your own personal experience because as a child growing up in the 70s that was just factored into my life experience was Ooh. I was a cute little child, cute little female girl and all kinds of adult men. You know, even when I was little like that, I wasn't even, you know, a teenager really felt at liberty to tell me I was cute and flirt with me. And I just had to factor that in, you know? And so it seems like maybe we've had social progress because you're, you both look like maybe you're doing <laughs> a blank. <laughs> you didn't deal with that. Is that true? Go ahead, Brie. Um, I've actually, so I'm, I'm thinking more of not at that age, but being the age I am now. Um, but I actually want to talk about my, my sister at this time, um, who spent a lot of years working in the restaurant industry. Mm. Um, and, 
in her early 20s and was a very cute petite blonde female and was constantly sexualized mm. and men that would come into her restaurant always assumed they could hit on her they could call out how cute she was how pretty she was what is a cute blonde like you doing here what, you know what can a cute blonde like you get me what can you bring me Ugh. um oh my god my sister would come home with these stories about these um, mostly middle-aged older white men yeah. um, just feeling the need to do that and feeling like they could do that and there was nothing wrong with it. Right, yeah. Um, I think to expand on that point, I really experienced this from other women and that's where I hmm. feel like it's important to call out the way that women police other women. So hmm. for me growing up, I, my mom is a very strong person and through like the complications in our family, like she has, she's very independent in the way that she lives and presents herself. So I took a lot of cues from that and it kind of makes other people feel uncomfortable when I don't present femininity in a way that is what they expect with the layer of as an Asian American woman, people expect me to be really submissive and passive and like whatever else. Hmm. And so I think whenever I was first experimenting with like my body and how like I was exploring my sexuality and understanding who I was as a person, I really heard a lot from other women of like, oh, but like, what would your boyfriend think? What Are you sure, like, is that attractive to men then? And I'm like, mm -hmm. this has nothing to do with that. Like, this is right. about me as a person finding value in myself outside of what a man can give me. Oh, that's so, such a good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that you guys have a little bit more freedom in this generation. Definitely, to I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to exist outside of a male gaze, you know, yes. it, the male gaze was uh, just not something I really even knew a name for until I was in probably graduate school. Oh. But, but it was how does this filter through the, you know, I, the, what a man would think or like right. or not like. And mm -hmm. even growing up in a home where I was encouraged to get a lot of education and think about a career and everything there. I also was policed in the way that you're talking about, mm. uh, Joanna. So that's, that's really resonant. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. We're talking about these somewhat universal experiences that women have that I do think we're going in the right direction culturally as, as we talk about our different experiences, but they're still, still there. And, and in, Britney Spears story, they're sort of amplified because they're just watched by the whole world. And it, yeah. it really, I couldn't imagine living the way that she did where there were just swarms mm -hmm. of people following her. She didn't feel safe. She would say, you're hurting me. You know, she, I just right. thought, goodness, to go through all these things that we're talking about, but with and just under a microscope. Yeah, absolutely. And having no voice in being able to counterattack or make points against the narrative that they were constructing around her. 
And before we move on from this point, this is something that I explored the last time I talked with Brie about um, the diet culture. And mm -hmm. it's very much what I'm working around right now in my own growth, which I think is so beautiful about our podcast is we're really getting to preserve and see how we grow as people and learn from each other. And right now I'm really learning from Alok and how their beautiful painting of masculinity and femininity that they embody in their existence and really challenging how we think about gender in a binary structure, especially since now we're also in the midst of a cultural awakening where we're understanding that gender is really a product of slavery and colonialization that isn't prevalent in other nations. So even as we're talking about Brittany being constrained to this idea of womanhood, I think it's also so freeing. And I really like think about what Brittany was saying in this liberation of, what if we existed out of this expectation of like, oh, because I was born like this, that I need to behave a certain way because I'm a woman to typecast someone as that. And instead really challenge how we think about people as human beings and how we can present all these different aspects of our gender. Does that make sense, Brie? Yeah, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a great way to think about it and you know, to go back to how this connects to Britney Spears, mm -hmm. I, I felt like this documentary existed in two parts. You know, it was really the first part was about the just the way that she was completely sort of accepted in the wrong way. You know, she should have been accepted mm. as this great talent, but because of her sexuality and all sorts of other things, you know, she became this sort of uh, this confection, this celebrity confection that people wanted to consume. And of course that just can never end well. And I, I think that for me, when I was watching all of this happen, you know, throughout, you know, the 2006, seven, as it was really getting bad, mm. I remember thinking this is another young celebrity who is going to die. She can't sustain mm. life this way. It made me think mm. about, and I'm not exactly sure when Amy Winehouse died, but it's it just, it felt like she was gonna die the way that, you know, so many Heath Ledger or Amy Winehouse. And I remember thinking that when that conservatorship happened, maybe that's gonna make her okay, right? Mm -hmm. And mm. in a way it did. You know, because she has lived this life, this adult life. She's had this su successful career. She's appeared to be able to develop a stable relationship with her children. Mm -hmm. This is me in no way endorsing the conservatorship, but that's just to be honest about how it looked to me from that perspective. Mm. She's going to go down this terrible road, either of dying or, or sort of never regaining any real strength yeah. in her mm -hmm. profession. So seeing that she did those things and not knowing, sort of filling in my lack of knowledge about conservative oh. about her relationship with Jamie Spears mm -hmm. or any of that, I just sort of thought, oh, look, she's okay. She's got this residency in Las Vegas. We see that she gets to be with her children and, um, and she uh, she was on uh, was it American Idol? I don't know which. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
that was the part where it seemed like a story that all ended up okay in the end. But to yeah. go back to this theme that we have around the idea of being free and at liberty, she, yeah. she's not free. Right. So I don't know. What thoughts do you guys have about that sort of conundrum of she's had this this kind of success and stability, but sort of in a prison-like environment? I, I would say that the way that you perceive that was really how the tabloids were presenting her. Mm -hmm. And that was the silent hand that none of us really were taking into consideration, which is something that Brie touched on earlier with understanding how dangerous this tabloid culture is. And I think that because of that, women are subjected to this idea of like, oh, they've lost control. Look at them spiral in this way. They mm -hmm. have no agency. So then whenever it was presented that this conservatorship is coming in and making that decision for her, for some reason that feels really comfortable in their society. Like there's a lot of decisions in which women do not have the right to make those decisions themselves because on some levels we feel more comfortable when a woman is being taken care of. And that was really what I saw or how I understand it now, because whenever this was all happening, um, Crimea River and every time that was 2003, 2004. So I was in elementary school when this happened. But I think we really got to see this play out again with Miley Cyrus's career, because mm -hmm. similar to Britney Spears, she came up with Disney and as she's breaking out of this Hannah Montana mold, the same way that Britney Spears is trying to break out and discover herself as an adult woman, people criticized her so much for figuring out what that looks like, being confident and any sort of confidence, needing to tie to sexuality and this idea that women have to present something so that we're not like corrupting the children or whatever, instead of questioning why is sexuality in itself something that we see as a negative thing for women to embody? What do you think, Brie? Um, yeah, I think I think that's a great point. I want to touch back on what Carrie said um, about how you felt like that the conservatorship kind of saved her. And I think that's mm. what everybody felt because that's what was being presented. And yeah. I, you know, I was in, I think, middle school or high school at the time when that happened. Um, but I think that's what everybody thought. They saw Britney Spears having a mental breakdown. She was presented as crazy and an unfit mother and she needed saved and the conservatorship was going to do that. And that was the only thing that was going to help her. Um, and there's so many unknowns in this stories. Like if there hadn't right. been the conservatorship, what would have happened? Like you, you know, there's, there are so many unknowns and things that you, you know, so little about, so you can't tell what would have happened if, if something else, you know, had been decided for her. Um, but my understanding of a conservatorship is that it's only supposed to be temporary, at least in Britney Spears case, it was supposed to just be temporary. Yeah. And once she got um, help or whatever, that it would end. And I think right. that's where I see so many issues is that this is still going on. And she's, you know, in 13 years of having her father in control of everything that she owns, all of mm -hmm. her all of her money um, and all why. Of her business transactions right. and mm -hmm. why, because that's not the, that's not what conservatorship is typically used for. Um, and it's just, yeah, that's all yeah, I have right. for now. <laughs> 
Absolutely. You guys are dropping a lot of truth bombs here. I just am thinking about uh, what you're saying, Joanna, about how we have this idea that that women should be taken care of. Mm-hmm. That's, that's uh, definitely a lens that I was really taught to see the world through. Mm. And so this idea mm. of of uh, if a woman is spiraling out of control, somebody has to come in and, mm. and fix it for her. Right. Like we have a feeling about that whenever men or women or anybody I know in my life when I see people suffering, I, I want to just go in and I, I, I'm like, if they would just let me run their right. life, and fix it. You know, there's a certain- Right, that is true. I think that's yeah. a, a natural instinct. Right, me. right. Yeah. And, it, and it's not a completely, it's, it's, it is wrong but it's coming, it's often not coming from a terrible place, but, but, you know, I, I'm just thinking about Miley Cyrus and that actually made me think about the Olsen twins um, who didn't really overtly sexualize themselves, but they still came in for a lot of criticism, Mm -hmm. you know, they got made fun of because they were actually, they actually wear tons of drapey clothes that don't show their body. Yeah, exactly. There, there's, it's kind of like they can't win, you know. Yes. Child actors, especially these little girls, whatever choice they make, they just come in for criticism, yeah. abuse, you know, sort of uh, not, and they're hounded, right. and you know, I think it just is. It goes back to this idea that I, I did have when I was a younger woman, which is. There, there isn't a way for young women to live their lives where there isn't, where everybody's cool with it. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, if you if you go it alone and you don't partner up with somebody, that's wrong. If you yep. <laughs> somebody and then you don't have kids, that's wrong. It's just so so many things, and it and it also brings me back to this thought that Brittany had children, you know, to what Bree was saying about her being an unfit mother. She, oh. It was such a perfect storm of mm-hmm. ways to shame her. Yes. Like a menu, like you're divorced from, from Kevin Federline. You don't have custody of your kids. You um, are too sexual. Oh, you shaved your head. Now you're not sexual enough. Um, all of this, they were just, mm-hmm. we just felt, and, and I just, have to say how complicit I was in that because mm. in that period of time, um, you know, maybe sort of like 2003 to 2008 or so I had this, no, it was farther out than 2008. I had a bad habit, which was reading this uh, blog called delisted. So mm. I was like, really like, Oh, I don't read Perez Hilton. That's a step too far. Right? <laughs> it's very interesting that he was in this documentary. Right. But there's this guy named Michael Kay who had not the same, but a similarly toned uh, blog. And I read it for entertainment. He was, it was just laugh out loud. Mm. Later I realized, oh, he's actually corrupting my belief about these people who, to mm. your earliest framing point, Joanna, are they're human. Right. And he just would, and he had favorites. He had people that he just did, left alone or basically liked, like with the whole, this is kind of a tangent, but with the whole uh, Jennifer Aniston, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie thing, he didn't like Jennifer Aniston. And he Ugh. would just, he would attack her in these very sick ways that yeah. 
that somehow I realized, oh, you know, what you consume, what you hear all the time really makes you think that there's something wrong with these people, even though Mm -hmm. I thought I was reading it because it's funny. And, you know, as they say today for the lulls, but I (laughs) realized later, oh, no, he's making me think that that like the Olsen twins, that there's something like objectively wrong with them uh, starting a business in fashion or just living their lives on their own terms. It's it's just, no, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, people make choices in life and whether they've been famous as children or not, yeah. there's it's ridiculous to, uh, to make an industry out of criticizing their choices, but that's exactly what we do. Right, and I definitely uh, shared that feeling, Carrie, when I was watching this. It just made me realize how susceptible and naive I was oh. back then to tabloids, and was just willing, you know, to believe whatever yeah. was printed on People Magazine or Us Weekly or what I read on the internet, um, which is the point of tabloids. And I was in probably their target audience of who they were trying to affect, and it it made me wish I could go back and with more skepticism like I do now and not being so, um, I guess, susceptible again to to what they're they're printing. I wish I had the, the critical thinking skills that I think I have now. I wish I had them back when I was younger. I appreciate both of you being so vulnerable and open and self-aware in how you <laughs> consume this information. I really want to echo the same thing. And I think that's something I really learned watching Jamila Jamil and her activism as she like Mm. takes on this media juggernaut and the way that she describes how we are so obsessed with, or we allow the tabloid culture to raise up a woman in her career and then oversaturate us to the point that we start rooting against them. And it's their demise that we become enthralled by and just really Mm -hmm. critically thinking then like as an audience member taking a step back of well these people who are deciding this do they really have these people's best interests in mind are they really presenting this in the lens of culture that we really want to think about because fundamentally what they're teaching us as we're absorbing like oh the Olsen twins are this and that and like the way that Justin Timberlake talks about like her virginity like we're observing we're absorbing how we shame each other we're we're becoming a society in which this is so hyper normalized because I think something else that really stood out to me was how Justin Timberlake was really pressured and benefited from exploiting Britney Spears in this way in her teardown. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's worth acknowledging that, that he gave, you know, an unconditional apology Mm -hmm. for this because it's, he was young too. They were sort of the product. And uh, as a man, he benefited in every situation more than the woman that he was with, uh, like at the Super Bowl in 2004, when oh he gosh. exposed mm-hmm. Janet Jackson's breast, so that was all about her being bad and not him. But, mm-hmm. but at the same time, yeah, I that that is so interesting. But I do want to complicate this a little bit and get your thoughts because, <laughs> you know, we're saying well, we're we're more critical consumers of media now than we used yeah. to be. But part of where I had this aha moment was it wasn't just the tabloids, you know, 
it was Diane Sawyer, it was Matt Lauer. So it was mm, like a good ABC point. Mm -hmm. and, NBC. Mm -hmm. and of course, we know that Matt Lauer, I'm going to use one of our few little swears that we get in here is a piece of shit, you know, <laughs> and, uh, the idea that he was questioning her putting her baby on her lap so that she could escape in a car from, you know, the paparazzi, that was just, right. rich. but, uh, but you know, that's, just to say they are part of the mainstream news. And I realized it is hard, so hard not to be gullible to media oh. narrative. And, oh. and this is where it makes me think of a conversation Brie and I had on the podcast weeks ago when we were sort of congratulating ourselves. I will admit <laughs> it, you know, for being savvy news consumers and, and, and trusting fact-based news and everything, which mm. I, I still think, yay us, that's good that we do that. And I, I think people should, should trust fact-based news sources and that journalism, when it's done correctly, you know, doesn't give us the truth because that's just a really slippery concept, but it gives us um, information that's more or less reliable. And it's kind of like the best thing we have for, you know, being able to get a good understanding of what is happening in our world. But even that is going to be pushing a narrative, mm -hmm, you know, right. kind of like a, a tendency like in Washington, the whole sort of Washington press corps will kind of flock to a specific narrative and then just repeat it over and over again. And same with, uh, entertainment news. There's just very quickly a narrative and then that drives the reporting. And I recognized that I was, you know, I was reading the Washington Post. I was, I was looking mm. at the networks, but they were pushing these narratives. And, and, you know, we said we were going to connect some dots when some of the dots we can connect are to Monica Lewinsky, yeah. um, you know, which I was, uh, just a few, I'm just a few years older than she is. So I, you know, at the time, watch, watch this with interest. I was, I was a Democrat. I was a Clinton supporter, but I felt icky about it as this went on. It's not mm -hmm. like he was just seen as a great guy, but the extent to which the narrative, the dominant narrative was to paint her yeah. as somebody who had a lot of agency in that situation, who was to blame. And this was where I go back to the you're wrong about folks and say, you know, that they've pointed out that, yeah, she's, she was like a 21 year old who got a crush on her boss and made some dumb decisions, which is not a super uncommon thing that young adults do. She made a dumb mistake, the kind that you sort of make as you're growing up, you know, compare that to sort of to what Bill Clinton did and all the power that he had in that relationship. Yeah. Right. The president. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I would just say similar, another piece in that story too, was that also we like when these stories, uh, you know, reaffirm our archetypes because another person in that story was mm. Linda Tripp, who was this older woman who befriended Monica Lewinsky and quote, and, and was recording her all the time, all, all their conversations. And that's sort of how all of this evidence came to to into being, but the thing that people were so fixated on with Linda Tripp, she was an older woman, you know, probably in her forties or fifties, were her looks that she was ugly, and it's just 
it, it just to me looking back is like I think we've grown as a culture because we don't mm. go after women for their looks the way that we used to. They're, they're, mm -hmm. They still do, but but you know, it's it's uh, I think we resist more these these narratives about women being young sluts or old crones or somewhere yeah. <laughs> in there. Like one of two options. <laughs> I do think it's hard to not buy into the media narratives. And it does show me where that opening exists for some of the radicalization that we have seen in our culture where, you know, people who don't believe that the election was fair or whatever, mm. there's a reason. There, it's not like our press is perfect and it's not like they're right. haven't been fed narratives that are false. Um, so it's not like I think, oh, we should all ignore the Washington Post and the New York Times and go be radicalized. But it's just the, the lines aren't as clear. I right. guess I don't know what you guys think about that. I do. And I think I think one thing that has helped and that is I don't know if it's our generation or even the generation after my generation, but I feel like celebrities feel more comfortable calling out the bullshit now. Like back then, I don't think Britney Spears or or boy bands or any artist in that days would have been comfortable um, voicing their displeasure or their disagreement with things that were happening in Hollywood. But I feel now that people are more comfortable speaking about that and calling out what's wrong in society and, and how they're affected by it, bringing more light to their mental health that has right. been affected by it. Um, and I think that's definitely helped um, change some of the culture around this is that people are, or celebrities are, I feel like have a little bit more freedom to, to yeah. use their voice to bring light to those issues and to the culture in Hollywood and how, how bad and how traumatic it can be for young young people i really i love that point that you just made breathe the humanization of the impact that this conversation has on mm -hmm. these celebrities and i think even to carrie's point i feel like what is happening is the introduction of social media creating this in-between point where mm -hmm. before it really depended on do you have access to power to print these things and now anyone can engage mm. in those conversations. And that also complicates how we perceive reality and truth. Because I think that mm, to Carrie's point about point. voter fraud, like that is where it's really come from is social media and how do we regulate that? Or not even regulate that. I mean, like on a personal level, how do you mm. perceive that and think about these things? Because to our earliest point, I, the way that we see this play out it really is just a medium for us to think about in our own personal lives. Like now I'm going to be questioning in the same way that I had these biases about Britney Spears and all these other people that we've talked about. How do I have those same biases with the people who are close to me in my life? And how do I transform our personal relationships to reflect how I want to grow as a person, how our society should grow? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, th I think those questions are just, all we can do is just keep asking the questions and never get too comfortable in, yeah, in our own right. perspective and, mm -hmm. and try to listen to, to, you know, a range of perspectives from people right. who are operating in good faith. But mm -hmm. I, I'd like to go back, you know, to this idea that you both brought up of how democratizing social media is and how celebrities mm. have a way to push back and create mm -hmm. their narrative. 
because I think obvious, I think the democratization that social media has created does mean, right, there's a lot of misinformation out there of things that get to a large audience aren't aren't vetted or edited in the way that they used to be, both for good and for ill. But, sure. you know, I, I mentioned early on that I did want to draw some lines between this and the Joss Whedon controversy that has occurred um, over kind of unfolded, especially over the last few weeks, where um, Joss Whedon was the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He mm. directed uh, a couple of Avengers movies. He also came in and uh, directed uh, Justice League uh, when Zack Snyder could not could not complete directing it. And one of the actors on Justice League, Ray Fisher, has uh, a lawsuit, an active lawsuit um, against Joss Whedon for um, unspecified abusive behavior on that set. And I think that's been going on for a while. That, that movie was in 2017, but it all kind of lit up again a couple of weeks ago because one of the Buffy uh, actresses, Charisma Carpenter, uh, used her social media platform. She, right. she put a statement out on Twitter where she recounted in specific terms the way that Whedon created a very toxic, abusive workplace. And some of the things that I really so value about how this has played out is that that the, what she's spelling out is not like he was sexually harassing her. He was just creating an environment where people always felt scared. They mm. always felt like they were about to lose their jobs. They never mm. knew what he was going to say that would just devastate them or create tremendous anxiety. And that that was how she had to exist in her workspace all that time. Uh, Charisma Carpenter was in Buffy and then she was a main character in Angel, which was the uh, sequel to Buffy. And so mm -hmm. she experienced this over many years. And what I thought was really powerful was how virtually every, most of the actors who uh, worked alongside Charisma Carpenter have also used that social media platform to say, yes, you're right, that, you know, thank you, Charisma. I, I remember it that way. Um, Sarah Michelle Geller said, I want to be associated with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but not with Joss Whedon. Hmm. Michelle Trachtenberg had one of the most haunting stories because she was one of the few teenagers on that show. Yeah. Even mm -hmm. though it was a show about teenagers, most of the actors were not teenagers. Right. Um, so she he indicated that he was sexually inappropriate with her. And there was a rule from that point on that they could never be in a room alone together. He and, mm -hmm. and, and so it, it's just in a way, I, I, I want to see if you guys feel this way about it. To me, it's a source of hope um, that 20 years later, 25 years later, we can talk about this and name these things. And that this entire cast, David Boreanaz, a number of the other men that were on these shows also have come out and said, yes, this is what I saw. Um, mm. That that there are these mechanisms for pushing back against powerful men. The flip side is that the reason that uh, Michelle Trachtenberg says she can do this is she's like, I'm 35 now. I feel safe. I, I, it took me 20 years to feel safe to say this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're, they're a long way out from their professional relationship with 
Whedon and they have a lot less to lose. So that's kind of a piece of context. They're all in a place where he can't hurt them as much. And then right. there's the safety in numbers. And it's unclear that he will really truly experience that much. Right. Yeah. What What do you guys think about all that? Um. So, yeah, I think, again, that social media can be can be helpful in that way. Um, and it makes me think of a multitude of shows where I've, I've seen stuff like that play out on Instagram or on Twitter. It happened with one of my favorite TV shows when I was in high school and college, which was One Tree Hill. Um, and then another, um, Sophia Bush was in another show that's still on TV, Chicago Fire, where she has indicated that she left for similar reasons. And it happened with House of Cards. So there's so many I think shows that are being brought to light where this stuff happened, where women were not treated right, they were sexualized, they were sexually harassed, um, and they didn't feel comfortable when they were on the show talking about it, or they felt like they had to leave the show in order to talk about it, um, which is unfortunate, but at least they can talk about it now. I don't think people could talk about it back then. Back then is in only like 10, 15 years ago. Um, and I, I do think social media has played a role in that and allowing people, because you know if you can't go to the show's producers or to people higher up in the company because they're also males, who do you go to? You know, if there is no outlet or there's no one that will believe you, but if you go on social media or you use another outlet, people may actually believe you. And I think that's another big shift in culture is having people believe you, whereas, you know, uh, 20 years ago, if a woman came out and said that, likely she wasn't believed or it automatically was, it took convincing that it happened. Um, where I think now people are, as more of it is brought to light, it's like, okay, this is a serious issue. And why haven't we believed women all this time? Like, why did it take 20 years for us to actually start believing that this is a real issue? And I think Carrie's point, the context that she provided, that even if we assume that it's a cultural shift, that it's an important indicator that it's also their freedom away from their age that they're at right now at 35, mm -hmm. being able to like understand this and also not being underneath that person. And I think even with social media, it's important to point out that this is really happening for people who already have platforms, who are already in positions of power in which they can really have support to take down these men. But I think it still persists that we don't believe women. We don't mm -hmm. believe women immediately. We need reasoning behind it. And right. especially like I was in college during the height of like the Title IX debate and like all of the sexual abuse and rape that has been covered up, like it still persists, like that is still happening. Right, right. It's not like we have fixed it. it right. It, right, it definitely still is happening. There are definitely still payouts to mm -hmm. women to just be quiet. Mm -hmm. um, I did want to just reference real quickly, there's a movie called The Assistant starring the actress Julie Garner that explores this. Uh, it's it's a very thinly veiled story about Harvey Weinstein, basically. It's like a life, mm -hmm. a day in the life of his assistant. And, and just to your point, Brie, about how uh, 
who's she going to go to as she sees all of these atrocities? You know, mm-hmm. she goes to HR, but they report right back to him, despite that being completely against, you know, it's, right. it's a lot harder in to fight back against this than anybody would imagine, even in a culture of where we have started to believe women more. And uh, it's, it kind of reminds me of the conversation that Donna and I had around King Day, which is you just have to keep keep doing the work, you know, mm-hmm. when you're doing anti-racist work, when you're doing, you know, work to destigmatize women's experiences and really anybody's experience with workplace bullying or, or sexual violence. Um, you know, it's, it, we never can sort of let up in our vigilance about, um, you know, being part of the solution for uh, creating a world where people can talk about toxic, a toxic or bullying workplace or, you know, violence that they've experienced or other things that are just a real abuse of, of power. Yeah. Yeah. I think that reminds me of Kanye West in the context of Britney Spears. Because I think that Kanye West presents this other side of that, where social media also gives people access to abuse celebrities directly. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in we see Kanye West really struggle with his bipolar disorder and his mental health in a way that was very public. And people just tore him apart to the point where Kim Kardashian, his wife, had to step in and say, we talk about supporting mental health, but this is what mental health really looks like. And are we actually having a conversation about that? And I bring up Kanye West because we see this really interesting parallel where he struggles with his mental health as well in the same way that Britney Spears was pushed to this point through the intensity of paparazzi following her, taking away her privacy, as well as the controlling nature of the pop industry. Mm -hmm. And her expression of that and the control that she now has lost and yet Kanye West is able to express something similar and struggle with something similar and yet he still maintains a level of control in his own life but we still have to challenge how we as a society consume mental health as entertainment and how we are really thinking about what does this mean because like even whenever we talk about Amy Winehouse like we can talk about how she was driven to that point but we are removing the responsibility of our society of like how we paid for those magazines that continued to disrupt her privacy in this way and told her mental health story in a way that just was sensationalized what do you guys think about that i i completely agree with with what you're saying and it makes me think of another podcast i love q anon anonymous um which uh they often talk about the idea of the spectacle and it's an academic Mm. idea and i would have to go back to uh remember who they're quoting but you know they talk about the spectacle in terms of donald trump and all of the just because right now this what i recognize that i feed on Mm. is spectacle you know, yeah. it's like I'm scandalized, but I'm also sort of energized and entertained and I want more and I want more mm. and I want more. And, you know, I think that's what you're talking about 
Joanna, like, like it's, it's the spectacle of, um, you know, Kanye West prodigy, Amy House prodigy, Britney Spears prodigy. So this incredibly talented person who's, who becomes a public person and there, and then struggles in one way or another, there's our spectacle. There's just so uh, riveting for us to watch. And then we become complicit in making right. it worse. Yeah. Right. yeah. There was an article um, and I, I truly can't remember where it was from, but I, I copied the the headline of it, which was, it was about Britney Spears. And I think it sums this conversation up really well. It said, the more vulnerable that Britney Spears became, the greater the public's interest was in watching her completely disintegrate. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think it shows how how troubled <laughs> that the culture was and society's view of of mental health was at that time. That it was just a form of, um, you know, it was entertaining to watch her fall apart. Right, right, right. Which is, it, it's kind of a a sad note to end on, but I feel like it's right to end this conversation with some sadness because um, it's the, it's an appropriate feeling when we see the way that we have so many structures and mechanisms that uh, kind of devour humans, people, young Mm -hmm. people, young, talented people. Um, And I think we are going to do a little bit more exploration. I know uh, Sharon and I are planning on a future episode where we look at confessional bloggers from that mm-hmm. era, because that was sort of a, a proto social media, you know, some mm-hmm. people who realized they could get out there and talk really honestly about their lives and how that was kind of revolutionary, but the backlash that they also experienced mm-hmm. just to say that this, this desire for spectacle, uh, it finds targets, not just superstars, uh, celebrity musicians, right. but also people who just through some really unfortunate things that happened to them, become a, an intense source of scrutiny. Um, so I think it's it'll be good to continue to examine this and how it intersects with questions of race and gender and sexuality and just class and all sorts of other markers of sort of cultural power. Mm. Um, but for now, I think we can wrap up this conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys so much. It was a lot for me to continue to process, as we say. And uh, I look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Definitely. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this, our final season one episode of A Lot to Process. We hope you enjoyed it and that you will stay in touch with us by reaching us at altppodcast at gmail.com and staying in touch on Instagram and Facebook. Please keep an eye on your feed as we will begin a second season soon with more topics and stories that we believe will be important to you and to our creative team, which includes Joanna Chen, Alex Sievers, Brianne Young, Sharon Lewis, and Donna Anderson, and myself, Carrie Osi. Thanks so much and talk to you again soon.